But friends, it can be a very powerful thing to thank someone openly, to pray for them openly. Not just a general sort of thanks or thank you, that's nice. Not just some sort of generic prayer for someone that we might just pray over and over again, but specific thanks for people and who they are and what they've done. Specific prayers with people and for people about the things that they need, that we need from God. Now, Paul's letters, most of Paul's letters, include a passage of Scripture that's like this one. Some of your texts will actually have a little section heading that says something like thanksgiving and prayer. And many of his letters contain these moments. And it's not just one, but several moments where Paul stops to thank this group of believers for what he's heard about them, pray specific things over them. So he is thankful for specific things for the Ephesian church. Paul continues to travel around the Mediterranean region. He's helping to plant churches and encourage churches. And as he does so, he hears word from other missionary teams about how things are going in Philippi or Corinth or Ephesus. And he hears these things. And so then when he writes this letter, he says, I am so thankful for what I hear about what you were doing in Jesus Christ. These are magnificent moments what he hears about them. And then that thanksgiving will turn into prayer, specific prayers, powerful things that Paul prays for in the lives of these early churches. Now remember, this is the very first generation of Christian churches, so there's a lot going on. There's a lot of life change. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of pushback on their new lives in Jesus Christ. So Paul prays for very specific things for them. And these Guys, are wonderful disciplines for us to create inside of our own lives. To learn to develop a habit of thanksgiving. To express to others, to express to God the things that we are thankful for, for all that they have done. Learning to develop a habit of prayer for other people. Not just in our own private prayer closets, but when we are with other brothers and sisters in Christ learning how to pray for them and with them. These are very powerful habits to develop in the life of the church. So when we read Paul do this, when Paul does this now for the Ephesian church, he mentions some fairly powerful and beautiful things when he deals with thanksgiving and prayer with the Ephesian church. So the first thing that happens in our passage is this. Paul just thanks them for their faith and for the love. They are enduring in their trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul continues to hear that even after he's gone from the city of Ephesus in the region, they continue to endure. They have faith. They've placed their trust in Jesus Christ, and he's thankful for that. And he's thankful for the love that they continue to show, not just love in general, some fuzzy sense of love, but their love for the saints. He says, I want to thank you. I keep hearing that about you. Thank you for doing that. Then that thanksgiving does turn into prayer in our passage. And he prays for some pretty powerful things. First of all, Paul wants them, Paul wants us, as he prays for Christians, to know God. That becomes really important vocabulary in this prayer. In the knowledge of him. May you know that. May you know Jesus Christ. He prays that God would actually give his children the grace to know him better. It's a powerful thing. He wants us to have hope. 
he prays about the hope that God calls us into. Before we know Jesus Christ, we may think we know hope, but we don't really until we've received or been called into the hope that God gives in Jesus Christ. So he wants us to have his kind of hope. He wants us to know what God's inheritance is. He prays about this specifically. It's a fascinating turn of phrase buried in the middle of this prayer. Paul has talked about our adoption as sons and daughters. He's talked about the inheritance that we receive, and now he actually begins to talk about the inheritance that God himself is anticipating receiving. It's a fascinating thing. And then Paul wants us to know the kind of power that God has. And not just that God has this kind of power, but that God exercises this kind of power on behalf of his church. So in doing so, talking about the kind of power that God has, and that he exercises for us, Paul begins to talk a lot about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's powerful stuff. I was telling Heather earlier this week, you know, as we went through the introduction of Ephesians chapter 1, we kept saying, man, this is dense. There's a lot of stuff, ideas stacked on top of ideas stacked on top of idea. Well, that continues as we go into Thanksgiving and prayer. This next passage is very much like that. So let's read this whole thing, and then let's start to unpack it and make sense of what Paul is doing in our passage today. So Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, Paul says this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. When he raised him from the dead, And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What a beautiful and astounding passage. This is what I'm thankful for when I think of you. This is what I pray for you when I pray for you. This is what I pray about. It's powerful stuff. For this reason, he says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for the saints, I continue to pray for you every time I think of you. I'm thankful for this, and then I begin to pray for you. Paul and his team were actually in the city of Ephesus for a long time. It might have been one of his sort of longest stints inside of that church. We read Acts chapters 19 and 20. We get a lot of that history. 
And we learn that Paul was in the city of Ephesus and in that region for two to three, maybe up to three years. Now, the church in Ephesus was, was so strong and was growing so well that Paul was able to use that city, that church, as a kind of home base. And from there, he would go to the surrounding cities and the surrounding region, and he would preach and teach and start churches there and raise up elders and leaders, so much so that the text says in the book of Acts that all of the region hears about the gospel of Jesus Christ while Paul and his team are in the city of Ephesus. So they know these people well. They know this region well. But Paul's been gone for a little while. So he continues to hear about this city and the church has grown. There are a lot of people in this church he doesn't know personally or by name, but he continues to hear really good things about them, about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for the saints. I want to think about this for a moment, of two, a moment or two. The Ephesian church continues to trust in Jesus Christ. That's sort of the simple root understanding of that word faith is to put their trust in Jesus Christ. They continue to trust that what Jesus says about life really is true. They continue to trust that what Jesus says about himself in God, in the Spirit, and salvation really is right and true. They trust that his way of life is the way of life to live. I continue to hear that you trust in Jesus Christ, and Paul is thankful for that. So this means that they've committed to this change in life. They've experienced some powerful things. Their life was moving in one direction. Now it's moving in a completely opposite direction, and they continue to follow Jesus Christ. We read again in the book of Acts a lot of the opposition that they're facing because now they're living different lives, but they pursue, they, they endure in their faith in Jesus Christ, even when they receive opposition for this brand new faith. There are always all kinds of temptations for the church to change its mind, for Christians to change their mind about even the most fundamental things of the faith. Sometimes those temptations rise up from inside of our ranks and sort of catches us by surprise. A lot of times those pressures are placed upon the church from the outside world. The church needs to grow up. The church needs to catch up with the times. The church needs to quit believing these antiquated things. So when the church endures in the truth, endures in their faith in Jesus Christ, it's reason to be thankful. Thank you, Paul says for remaining faithful to Jesus Christ. Beyond that, they continue to love the saints. This kind of love is a fundamental teaching in the New Testament about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Again, it's not just love in general, some fuzzy, undefined notion, but this idea that we learn how to show the love of Jesus Christ to brothers and sisters in Christ, others who follow Jesus. We show love for the saints, and then we learn how that love overflows to the rest of the world so that they can see what God's kind of love is like. He says, I'm thankful that I hear that you continue to do that for each other, then it's going to overflow to the rest of the world. So when Paul writes this letter, the Ephesians are pursuing this, they're continuing this, they're enduring in this, and this is good news. Well, there's a second letter that is written later on to the city of Ephesus. It's not just this book, but Jesus Christ himself. In the book of Revelation, he writes seven letters to seven churches. The first letter that he writes is to the church at Ephesus, 
and we discover that they've stumbled a little bit. These things that Paul mentions, faith in Jesus Christ, love for the saints, they've sort of made a couple of mistakes, and Jesus wants to encourage them in a certain direction. So here's part of what Jesus writes to the city of Ephesus in the book of Revelation chapter 2. Jesus has just commended them for calling out falsehood and holding to the truth, and then he says this, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I'm thankful for your endurance. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. So they've remained faithful to the truth, but they're stumbling with the kind of love that Paul was excited about. The love for the saints, the love that they have for the things of God. Jesus says, now this needs to be fixed. You're losing the love that you had at first. Guys, I make a deal out of this because this is actually a really easy move for the church to make in one direction or the other. When we speak of the need for the church to remain faithful to the truth of Jesus Christ, and when we speak of the need for the church to remain faithful to the kind of love that Christ calls us to show, it's very easy for a church to make this kind of mistake in one direction or the other. We may become so focused on doctrinal truth that we become focused in on it in the wrong kinds of ways and we become Pharisees. And we hang on to doctrinal truth, but then we start letting go of love and the way love works between us. Now the pendulum can swing in the other direction as well. And we become so enamored with showing love that it reduces to acceptance and we lose hold of truth itself and it begins to fade into the background. And these are mistakes that churches and denominations and movements and individual Christians make all the time. So we have to hear the Apostle Paul say thank you for maintaining both. In fact, later on in the book of Ephesians, this is a magnificent verse when it comes to this truth and love kind of balance. Paul says in excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, he puts it like this. Rather, speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. It's spiritual maturing for us to figure out how to hang on to both truth and love in our action with each other and with the rest of the world. So hearing that Christians are able to maintain that balance, and it's a biblical balance, it's a powerful balance, hearing that a church can do that, Paul says, thank you. I'm so thankful that you guys are doing this. So as we hear Paul give thanks, and you read his other epistles, and even later on in the book of Ephesians, he's going to do this kind of thing with them. I want us to think for a minute about the act of thankfulness, of thanksgiving, the discipline of giving thanks out loud to God and to other people. It really is learning how to give thanks. It really is a spiritual discipline that will open us up to the kind of good that God is doing. It opens our eyes. It will open our souls to the kinds of things that God is up to and how to be thankful for these things when we see them. So when we give thanks, the person who receives that thanks can be encouraged in good directions. 
we see what you are doing. You're remaining faithful to God like this and like this and like this. Thank you for doing that. That's encouragement to be pressed on in the right direction. The right kind of encouragement from a good leader, a good coach, a good parent, a good spiritual leader. When we receive that thanks, something inside of us goes, hey, that's a, it, it releases just a little bit of dopamine, and we go, mm, I like that. I'm going to keep on doing that. Thank you for doing that, right? And then the person who gives thanks is learning how to tune their soul to what God is doing. And we learn how to do this, and it's deliberate. And sometimes we have to sit down and think about it. What can I be thankful for? Those around me, what can I be thankful for? Who God is and what He has done. And guys, this kind of discipline of thanksgiving and gratitude can actually act as a certain kind of um, antidote to misery and negativity and anxiety and fear and even relational strife that instead of griping in frustration and fear, there's gratitude and there's thanksgiving. It's a powerful discipline inside of our lives, and Paul leads the way, constantly saying these things to these churches. Even churches he disciplines, even 1 Corinthians begins with thanks. It's great. And he says, I'm thankful for you, and every time I think of you, I never cease to pray for you. So he says there in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So he moves from thanksgiving to praying for them, to praying out loud for them. And Paul is going to pray that they receive and know and understand some fairly specific things, some really powerful things when we actually slow down and hear what Paul says is possible in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, so much of this prayer is caught up in one little phrase sort of near the beginning. It's the kind of phrase that sort of puts everything together, and it's the phrase that may God give you in the knowledge of Him. Paul is praying that God would grant us the gift of knowing Him better. He's going to give us all these things, these graces, in the knowledge of Him. So Paul's fundamental prayer is, may you know God. May you know God. We're going to keep on. That's going to act as a kind of big idea for us. And we're going to, we're going to sort of unpack that through Paul's language as he goes to the rest of this prayer. May you know God. So the first thing that Paul says is, may God give you, may he grant you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. So again, the language, the verbs are important. God is doing this. God is the initiator. Paul is not saying, now, I'm really hoping that some of you are just sharp enough and put just enough time in to sort of attain a certain kind of special knowledge, and then you're going to start to know who God is. He treats God as the initiator. He treats God as the one who believes that this is so important that he will start the process inside of our hearts and minds. May God give you, he says. So even the knowledge of him is a gift that God gives now, this Ephesian church is, is on the right track. They're not 
perfect people. No church is full of perfect people. But if they're on the right track and they are attentive and open to the things of God, they're going to begin to see it. So may God give it. May our eyes be pointed in the right direction so that when God begins to reveal himself, when he begins to give these kinds of gifts, we're ready to accept them. So often inside of our lives, we are so untuned to God in his presence, we just are not paying any attention to him at all. We open the word and it's dry and dead to us. We go into prayer and it's just like praying underneath a low ceiling. We go into worship and we go, I don't know why anyone else is excited about this. It's because we've paid no attention to the things of God. So for paying attention to the things of God, Paul says God's got to give you these things. Wisdom and revelation. Wisdom, biblically, is the ability to know the ways of God and live according to them. This is biblical wisdom. To know the ways of God and then to be able to actually live according to those ways. So this isn't simple head knowledge, some details that I've crammed in there that I can repeat on command. This is knowing the things of God and being able to live according to the will of God, to be the ability to live well. This is biblical wisdom. Revelation is a fascinating word in the New Testament. The spirit of wisdom and of revelation. The word revelation, it's, it, it's actually the word from which we get our word apocalypse. So the book of Revelation is the book of apocalypse. Now, we think of apocalypse and we think of zombie movies and nuclear fallout. That's not what the word means. The word means the revealing of knowledge. Specifically for us, the revealing, the unfolding of the will of God. It's another way of talking about how the mystery gospel of Christ works. Now remember, mystery doesn't mean something fuzzy and unknowable. It means something that God is revealing now. It was once not known, now it is being made known by God. God is giving us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, of wisdom and of revelation. Let's put it like this. What would you do with your time with God if you knew you had access to those two gifts? What would you do with your time with God if you knew that God is ready to give you the gifts of wisdom and of revelation? That you could actually find yourself understanding the voice of God when He speaks. You could actually find yourself more and more excited about prayer, about time in the Word, because you're ear is being tuned more and more closely to the things of God. May he give you spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And may he do all of it, Paul says, in the knowledge of him. This is a robust sense of knowledge. The word itself means a precise and correct understanding of a thing. But the way that Paul talks about it, again, is not just a matter of, I've memorized something in a book and can repeat it. This is knowledge of relationship and experience. This is a robust knowledge. The way that you get to know close friends over time, the way you know your spouse, the way you know your family over time, this is relationship and this is experience. This is the kind of knowledge that Paul is praying for. So think of it like this. 
Can you recite John 3.16? Maybe you've memorized it, and you can repeat it back to me. If I start to quote it here this morning, I will blow it, <laughs> right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know John 3.16? Well, yes, I can actually repeat it to you. That's one kind of knowledge. But then I can ask you the question, can you tell me why that's important? Can you feel how the question changes the answer? Can you repeat John 3.16? Yes. Now, can you tell me what it means? Can you tell me how it has impacted your life? The truths that are in that verse, what has it done to you? You see, that's a different knowledge. That's a knowledge of experience. That's a knowledge that comes from genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. Can we describe what God is like when we pray? Can we describe what the presence of God is like when we worship? Can we describe what the voice of God is like when He speaks to us through His Word? That's the kind of knowledge that Paul is praying for. May you know God. May we know God. It's such an important thing to him that he uses these really, um, these really beautiful phrases. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's actually a very provocative phrase. Another translation, the New Living Translation puts it like this, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light. Isn't that cool? And he's praying to Christians. He's praying to people who've just come to Jesus Christ or have been now walking with Christ for five, six, seven, maybe eight years now. And so he continues to pray for them, I want your hearts to be flooded with the light of Jesus Christ. Paul is praying for a complete change of perspective. A word that strikes me as I've sort of wrestled with this phrase is that he's praying for a change of imagination. The way we imagine things can go is now different because of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus and all that he is in our lives, our imaginations are sort of locked into this secular universe. But with Jesus Christ, now all this is possible. Guys, our perception of the world is bound by how we imagine it can be. Our perception of things is bound by the limits of our imagination. And without Jesus Christ, that imagination of what the world can be, what's possible, is really pretty small. Now, many of you know <clears throat> that I spent a lot of time studying philosophy. And I still don't regret it, by the way. Every now and then I get asked, do you regret doing that? I don't. <laughs> But uh, philosophers sometimes deal with some pretty abstract concepts, and when they do, they sometimes tell what they call thought experiments. And it's just a little concrete story that's sort of made up, a made-up little story, a thought experiment. And as you deal with that thought experiment, you actually end up dealing with some pretty big ideas, and it helps us understand some other things. And as I was going through this passage of Scripture, 
I was reminded of a, a, a fairly common thought experiment amongst philosophers, and the story goes like this. Can you imagine a child who was born and who lives for several years inside of a black and white room? They don't see anything that's not either black or white. They don't interact with anything that has any color to it. It's just all black and white. That's all they ever actually see. <clears throat> now, as they grow up, that child is taught all sorts of things, including they're taught about color. Now, they don't see color, but that child is taught all of the physics of the, um, the way light works and the waves of light work. And so, as that child is taught about the color red, that child doesn't see the color red, but they're taught about how that wave of light actually works and <clears throat> how it bounces off of something else and strikes the back of your retina, and they learn about all the, the chemistry and the bioelectric information that moves from the back of your retina into your skull and your brain, and your brain fires like this, and you recognize that's the color red. They can tell you all of that, but they've never seen the color red. Now, the question is, does that child know what the color red is like? Then one day, <clears throat> what you do for this poor little child, <laughs> that's what happens in these thought experiments, <clears throat> is you open the door to the rest of the world and you show them something red. They finally see the color red. What's different now? What's changed? You show them an apple and you say, this, this is red. You show them the fire engine. You say, well, that is red. See, the door is open. Light has come in. And we know intuitively that it's a different experience all together. They know all kinds of things about the physics and science and chemistry of the color red, but they've never seen it. They can never point to it. They haven't experienced that color. May your hearts be flooded with light, Paul says. You think you knew what this meant, but now the door is open. And now you're going to actually get a chance to see and experience what life with Jesus Christ is really like. The Ephesians had been living in these tiny little boxes of their pagan idolatry and all that came with that and all the moral and family and social structures that came with that little box. Our culture lives in this tiny little secularist box and it's all inside of here. But Paul says, Jesus Christ opens the door, and now we see. We see something new. We actually experience the things of God. Here's another question for you. What would you do with God if you knew that the closer you got to Christ, the more light you saw? Do you want to see more? Do you want to know more of God? Do you want to experience more of God? Paul says, let his light dawn on you more and more. What would I do differently if I knew the closer I got to him, the more I saw? So the door opens and the light floods in. We begin to see now in color instead of black and white. So we may ask the question, well, what are those colors that we see? What are we now experiencing that we thought we knew beforehand and didn't know until the door was open? The very next thing that Paul says is, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. You thought you had hope. You thought you knew how to figure out hope in this world, and you were wrong. But now that Christ 
He's enlightened you. Now that there is life with Jesus Christ, now we know the hope that God has called us into. All of this light, all of this extra color, Paul says, we can call hope. And I love the way he puts the phrase, God has called us. He is pulling us into his hope. Now, this hope is based on what he has done for us. As we went through the introduction, we kept reading that over and over again. The kinds of things that God has done, that he has provided our salvation from sin. He has purchased our freedom from sin so that now, because of him, we are free to live in his life. We are free to obey the things of God now. God has done all of these things for us. This is a hope that is rooted in the character and in the power of God. It means that this kind of hope is more powerful than whatever season of life comes upon us or even the moment of death itself. This is an amazing hope that we are given, guys. If Christ tarries, the day will come when this physical body and probably this mind are going to fall into broken little pieces and I will die. That is not the end of the story for the children of God. There is hope in this life that is stronger than whatever comes our way, and it is a hope that is stronger than death itself. This does not mean that everything will go well for us if we just claim it in the right kind of way, but it does mean that God will never lose his hold on us no matter what happens to us. That's what this hope is like. Paul prays this for the Ephesians. Paul prays this for the Romans as well. Near the end of Romans, in chapter 15, verse 13, Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so by the power of the Holy Spirit you may be able to put up with low-grade misery and anxiety until you finally die power of the Holy Spirit, you, you may abound in hope. It doesn't matter what you've brought to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you've brought into your faith with him. He says you, because of this God, can abound in hope. Getting to know this God is getting to know this kind of hope, he says. You may know the hope that he has called you into. And then he says this, that you would know this. What are the riches, the end of verse 18, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul wants us to know about God's wonderful inheritance. That's how the vocabulary works here. He's speaking of God's inheritance. Now, this is an astounding thought. God inherits us. God inherits his children. Now, Paul has already talked about our adoption as sons and daughters, and that because of that adoption, we now walk into an inheritance, and we receive this thing of value, our salvation, the kingdom of God. We've put it in terms of now because of our adoption, the Father's house, all of the Father's house is open up to us now. We receive things of value, and now Paul says just very quickly, but he says, understand that God is also anticipating receiving something of value. You, me, his children. There are other passages in the scripture where 
he actually talks about you and me in terms of his reward. It's stunning. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. In Isaiah chapter 40, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. This is his reward. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those with young. God is coming, Isaiah says. And his reward is with him. It's his flock. It's his children. It's those for whom he paid the price of his son Jesus Christ upon the cross, rose him from the dead so that he would receive you as his reward. The value that God places on, upon you is simply beyond our ability to understand. That kind of value that God has given you. He values his children so much. The next thing Paul says is he says he values you so much, his inheritance in the saints, that he takes every ounce of his overwhelmingly glorious power and he exercises it on your behalf. That's amazing. Listen to this. <clears throat> that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward, toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. The immeasurable greatness of his power, his great might. Paul forces together these over-the-top terms to try to explain to us what he knows about the power of God. I can put all of these adjectives together, put all of this vocabulary together, and I, I'm really still not quite sure I've described it to you. It's not just great, it's immeasurably great. It's not just might, it's great might that he is exercising on behalf of those who believe. This kind of power isn't the kind of power that can, a, that can deal with most stuff. I'm glad you're a Christian because God is going to be able to handle most things in your life. That's great. Most of the time, it'll be effective. It's like dandruff shampoo. 99% of the time, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It's not like that. It is perfect and absolute. What God wills, He does in perfection. Get that, guys. What he wills, he does in perfection. It's not like the greatest actual batting average. It's a little bit closer to that 1,000. It's not even like human power. If we can imagine the greatest human empire, the greatest human power, the greatest, most powerful nation, the most powerful individuals who've ever walked the face of this planet, and we go, well, we take that, we turn it to 11, and then we've got God. It's not like that. He is altogether different and altogether powerful. Paul says this is how much he values you. He takes all of that and he exercises it on behalf of his children. It's overwhelming. 
What would you do differently? How different would your life be if you knew that that kind of power was going ahead of you? Would take you from now into the presence of God? What would be different in our lives? What would be different in our church if that's literally how we lived our lives as if this were true? Now, in order to flesh out, to try to explain the kind of power that God exercises on behalf of His church, Paul is going to put it in terms of what He has done in Jesus Christ. He is actually going to place now our identity not in what we're able to do, not in how much we're able to accumulate, none of those kinds of things. He places our identity squarely in the middle of Jesus Christ and all of the power that God is revealing through the life of Jesus Christ. So these last few verses, again, they're just packed full of things, and we'll, we'll talk about a few of them, but these are the kinds of things that will become big deals as this book unfolds, and we're going to get to continue to interact with these ideas, but all of these ideas here help us to understand, well, what kind of power are you talking about, Paul? And what is the immeasurable greatness, he says in verse 19, of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, and here it is, Paul says, this is what that power does, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, gave him to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. <laughs> God raised Christ from the dead, Paul says. So God's power is stronger than death. God's power is stronger than a political system that does evil. His power is greater than that. And you and I now live inside of that identity. You and I now have that kind of power exercised on our behalf in Jesus Christ, he says. Then he uses this imagery that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now that imagery does two things for us specifically. Some of you may remember in our Hebrews study, that was actually a big deal in the book of Hebrews. But this imagery of Christ seated at the right hand of the Father of authority does a couple of things. First of all, it is the image of a completed job. The book of Hebrews says that these priests are offering sacrifices day after day after day after day, and they never sit when they do their job because these sacrifices have to continually be made. But Jesus Christ, the final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice upon the cross, he makes it, he rises, he ascends into heaven, and he sits because it's done. Nothing else needs to be done for the forgiveness of our sins but the acceptance of Jesus Christ as my Savior. That's it. The job is done. So he is seated at the right hand of God. The other image that's, that's captured inside of this moment is an image of authority. He's seated on the throne of power. This is the image of the King of kings and of the Lord of hordes, the God of all history, all of creation. Everything is making its way to Jesus Christ. And Paul says he's far above 
all dominion and rule and power and authority above every name. And that's, that's sort of a, a, a biblical a Greek image of name being a, 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 an act of power, a person of power. Every name that ever was, that is, or is to come, all of it is beneath the feet of Jesus Christ, for He is King of kings. He is the cosmic victor. A passage like this reminds me of another passage in a book that I love. It's buried in the middle of the book of Daniel. And it's easy to miss because you get to a certain point in the book of Daniel. And Daniel starts seeing all these crazy visions. These visions he doesn't understand and blows his own mind. And we read it and we go, I understand why his mind was blown. But he's in the middle of these visions and he's seeing all these beasts, these very powerful beasts that lay waste to the world and lay waste to each other. But in the middle of one of those visions, he sees a different kind of kingdom. He sees a different kind of God. And he watches this happen in Daniel chapter 7. It goes like this. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. This becomes an image of God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Do you want this kingdom? Or do you want to put all of your hope on a presidential election? Which kingdom do we want? Which kingdom do we tend to live in? This is the one that the church follows. This is the one that the church belongs to. This is the power that is exercised on behalf of the church in Jesus Christ. Everything, Paul says, in heaven and on earth is under the feet of Jesus Christ. This is the power that God extends to His children. And it's not just this sort of overarching divine supernatural notion of, you know, it comes in the clouds and we watch the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man and He's King of Kings. All of that is true. It becomes enormously practical as Paul finishes his prayer and he says, God has given this Christ to the church. He is the head of the church. We are His body. So this becomes enormously important for us the decisions we make, the things that we do, the way that we do them, because as the church marches forward, it belongs to Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul puts that same thought in Colossians chapter 1. He says, And he, speaking of Jesus Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. May you know, he says, the power of God that he exercises on behalf of those who believe. So we go forward in the power of Jesus Christ, but this will only be true if we endure in our faithfulness, if we keep ourselves close to Jesus Christ and true to who He was and is and always will be. 
Guys, the church of Jesus Christ is an utterly unique system here on earth, but only if the church does what Christ calls us to do. Only if the church speaks what Christ calls us to speak. If the church believes in the truth of Jesus Christ, and if the church shows love the way that Christ taught us to love, the church is utterly and completely unique. We may think we know God, but have our hearts been flooded with this kind of light? Do we know these kinds of things about God? <laughs> this is the question I went rolling through our heads this week. Do I know God? Let's pray.